Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American fan service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. everybody and welcome back to the stateside madness podcast by american fans for american fans i'm Lori, and i am paulie and uh so we're going to be talking about dance craze today Lori. it's a, a concert film right with a, a number of two-tone artists and it was released in the uk on february 19th 1981 that's part of the reason why we decided to time the episode the way we have. And it was released in the United States on April 23rd, 1982, so the following year. For this episode, uh, I am really a Philistine when it comes to the whole, you know, second wave ska stuff, two-tone. So um, we're really going to be picking Polly's brain on this episode a lot. And I'm going to be learning along with our listeners here because there's a lot of stuff here that I do not know. But first, before we get into that, um, I think we need to do the communicator, yeah? I think so. So we have two bits of news for our listeners today. The first one is the Punk Rock Bowling and Music Festival. So Madness were scheduled to appear. This was on uh, Memorial Day weekend in Las Vegas. They were originally scheduled to appear last year. It was postponed because of COVID. Well, they've postponed it again. They've postponed the festival until fall of 2021. And the festival management says they're going to make an announcement regarding the festival lineup on February 16th. So we're not sure whether or not Madness are still going to be playing. I guess we'll find out on the 16th. But I did notice that Madness is playing a handful of German tour dates in September. So I'm not sure what the timing is going to look like for this, but it's possible that if they reschedule for September that madness might have to bow out. I'm just speculating. I don't know for sure. I'm not speaking on behalf of the band or of the festival, 
Um, but uh, that announcement for the lineup will be forthcoming February 16th. That it will. All right. Then the second announcement, which if you've been following either statesidemadness.com or our Facebook or Twitter, you've already heard. March 12th, Madness is releasing a new American compilation album called Our House. It's going to be on CD and on vinyl. And it's uh, 12 tracks. Most of the tracks, I suspect, um, the hardcore fans probably have already heard and probably already own. It's notable because this is going to be the first release on a physical medium of their single Bullingdon Boys. And that was a digital-only single in Britain. Um, it's a song, I guess, it's about British government and, and uh, how many of them went to Oxford University. It's named after the Bullingdon Club and Oxford University. I'll be honest, I don't really get it. It's, it's, it's a little bit over my head. But it is notable because this is going to be the first time that people can buy this uh, in a physical form. And I really suspect, uh, from talking to many of my friends, um, a lot of my friends in the UK are going to be ordering this as an import just so they can get that single. And I suspect that might be part of the marketing strategy here. Sure. And uh, which begs the question kind of these days, um, I buy an awful, awful lot of imports, uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and, uh, uh, it's, it's nice in one respect that we're able to have such easy access to, uh, different, uh, formats and things from all over the world, uh, but they're so easily accessible. Uh, I wonder if there's going to be a period sometime soon where there's no uh, deviation between uh, releases in different parts of the world. I mean, if you can, if anybody can get it anywhere, why, why go to the trouble? But anyways, that's speculative on my part. And it looks like we might be ready to kind of get right into the meat of the podcast. So uh, leading in, uh, before we did our hellos in the communicator, we heard a little bit from Nightclub from the specials. And uh, the specials probably being, um, I, I guess, the, the sun in the solar system of the ska revival movement. Uh, they seem to have connection to everybody in it. Um, and uh, we'll he also hear a little bit of Nightclub a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but Lori, uh, being the Philistine that you were talking about uh, in reference to Sky Revival, um, do you have a take on the specials? Uh, have you listened to them previously? I have, and actually it, it kind of came through this movie, actually. It was my first exposure to many of these bands. Um, they're all right, I guess. I mean, I, I honestly, I really prefer Fun Boy 3. Um <laughs> The specials, they really don't do anything for me, but I mean, I appreciate, you know, how important they were to the Sky Revival movement. So just not my thing. Fair enough. Well, uh, they've, they've also, um, you know, like many other bands, they've evolved a fair bit and they had a couple of years ago a really solid release with their Encore album, um, only three of the original members, but um, very updated, very modern very politically charged and uh, pretty poppy. So it might be something you want to listen to. But in any event, let us move on uh, to talk a little bit about dance craze. And I want to give everybody out there uh, an idea, 
kind of of where we might be going with the podcast because uh, in doing research for this, um, I found it was very difficult first to get a lot of information on the film and secondly um, to talk about it in a way that wasn't just listing down all the tracks that are on the uh, on the movie. Um, otherwise, there'd be no point for us. Anybody could go and do that on their own, watch it on YouTube, and there'd be no use for Laurie or Polly. So uh, I've had to do a little bit in the way of, um, you know, digging a little bit deeper. And, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about each band. We're going to play at least a couple of songs that are representative um, from each of the bands. And we're going to talk a little bit about, I guess, what the whole purpose for the movie is, which is chronicling a movement. Um, so expect that as we kind of go through what we're doing here today. So, um, like Laurie said, the film uh, was released in 1981-1982 here in the U.S. It was directed by Joe Massett, and he, he kind of dabbled a little bit early on in his career in music uh, documentary um, uh, films, and he was the initial director on Led Zeppelin's The Song Remains the Same. Uh, I think he got canned from that, though. He never ended up finishing it. Uh, so it was taken on by a different director. And uh, as the story goes, as many Madness fans will know, um, the original uh, kernel of an idea for the movie was to uh, do a film about Madness, who um, Joe Massett had met when they had done uh, their very brief uh, United States tour uh, a couple of years previously. And um, so he, he, he was keen on exposing madness, but then I guess took a turn um, and decided that chronicling the entire movement would probably be uh, make for a better film. And so that's how we came to get Dance Grace. All right, so after that first song by the specials, we have a classic by Madness, The Prince. Your idol. Basta, he's so good. With a rock steady beat. Right, uh, and so as is our like, we like to comment a little bit about each song that we do play. 
although we've certainly uh, talked a fair amount about the prints, but um, this is probably one of the more appropriate uh, placements for it because it's in the movie about the Scott Revival and um, is sort of the name dropping homage to Prince Buster. And let's go ahead, let's rate it. I know I love it, Lori. And I know you love it too, but why don't we hear from you? Oh, you're putting me on a spot again. Um, it, I think I said before, this is probably my least favorite single by Madness. But again, I also appreciate, you know, for what it is, right? It's an homage to Prince Buster, the Jamaican ska movement, but also at the time that this song came out, which was late 70s, it was very, very different from everything else you were hearing on the radio. You know, everything was like disco or uh, prog rock, right? And this was something that I imagine would have to have been a breath of fresh air for listeners on the radio. Um, so again, I appreciate it for what it is and for what the band is trying to do. Not my favorite song by them, but without this song, I don't think any of the other stuff that came after would have happened. And you're not wrong in that. Um, I would um, point out kind of, I think, bragging a little bit on behalf of our favorite band, but um, I, I rewatched the movie this morning and uh, there is a noticeable, noticeable difference in the amount of energy and crowd response when Madness are playing their songs. And the Prince certainly representative of that. It really, really sets the crowd off. In between the next few songs, we're going to talk about the real crux of the film, which is the ska revival movement, often referred to as British ska, or the two-tone genre, the two-tone period, two-tone style. Uh, but before we get right into that, being as the defining ethos or principle of the two-tone movement is uh, racial unity, harmony, and um, representation in bands, I thought it would uh, make sense to talk a little bit about ska, the Jamaican ska, Jamaican immigration, and uh, how we got to be at this point in 1981 where there were in fact uh, multiracial bands and um, the movement happening in Great Britain. So I thought maybe we would do with a quick, quick little history lesson. So anyways, I'm going to ramble down this pretty quick. So follow along, kids. Otherwise, it's like being in school. I don't want anybody snoozing off in the middle. But as with all significant happenings of the 20th century, the story of British ska has its roots in early colonialism. Now, Lori, we all know what happened in 1492. There's even a little rhyme that goes along with it. But Christopher Columbus exploring the new world tooling around the Caribbean aimlessly, not really knowing where he's going, hitting a lot of stops, up to a lot of mischief is the probably the euphemistic way of putting it. And he does that, goes back and forth, he makes a fourth voyage in 1503, and he gets stranded in Jamaica. He's there up to his usual shtick, and he is... Um, looking for help from the indigenous people. He dispatches some of them by canoe to the island of Hispaniola to see if the governor there, um, also a charge of the Spanish empire at that point, um, will offer a little bit of help. And Lori, 
as a proud Italian-American and a progressive, I'm going to ask you a question uh -oh. that might really tug um, at you emotionally. Uh -oh. You're going to be conflicted. What do you think? Uh, did um, the governor of Hispaniola think Columbus was a good guy or kind of like a straight-up jerk? You know, I have no freaking idea. I'm a professor <laughs> of computer science, not history. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I don't care to speculate. Okay, so uh, as it turns out, the governor of uh, Hispaniola really told Christopher Columbus kind of fuck off. He's like, I am not sending you help. You are stranded there. And um, so consequently, he was there for over a year. And that kind of establishes the foothold for Spain um, uh, colonizing Jamaica. And... Um, you know, the normal things happen under Spanish rule there. Uh, there's enslaving the indigenous folks, there's depleting resources, all the things you think. And 1654, 150 years later, Oliver Cromwell, he wants what Spain has going on in Jamaica. Um, you know, so fighting ensues, takes a couple tries, but by 1655, Jamaica is a British colony. Uh, Spain didn't leave it in that great a shape, so they start introducing African slaves, and um, everything happens just like you would imagine. So there you go, stir and simmer, and pretty soon we get to World War I, where Great Britain has need of enlisted folks to fight in the war, and they recruit Jamaican men to fight for them. And then later on, World War II rolls around. Same deal. And that's kind of, uh, you know, the Jamaica, the real start of um, Jamaican folks getting a great deal, much more exposure to English culture, American culture, I guess you could say there too. And, um, you know, then after that, uh, a lot of the ex-Jamaican uh, GIs, they go back to Jamaica, although there's already some people starting to immigrate from Jamaica to Great Britain. And, you know, then that's really where that cross-pollination of cultures starts to happen. In Jamaica, people are getting transistor radios. They're starting to be able to hear radio from 
the United States, from Mexico, New Orleans, Texas, Florida. Um, they're starting to hear blues. They're starting to hear rock and roll. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, the crying all the time. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, crying all the time. Well, you ain't never caught a rabbit and you ain't no friend of mine. Well, they said you was high class. Well, that was just a lie. Yeah, they said you was high They're starting to hear soul and jazz. And then they get the idea. They mix in a little bit of Caribbean Mento, a little bit of Calypso. They have got their traveling sound systems. And boom, there we go. We've got ska. Now, I could go into a lot more about the foundation of ska, but I think the real thing we're trying to hit at here is the connection between uh, Jamaican and Brits and the movement that develops that causes the movie Dance Craze. So then we're going to jump forward to Thatcher era Britain, uh, widespread poverty, unemployment, crime, working class Brits are moving to the less desirable neighborhoods that are already occupied by many of the Jamaican folks. It's kind of like poor people mixing together. And there you go. Somebody's going to lend somebody else a record. It's probably a Prince Buster LP. Maybe it's Lord Tanamo. Maybe it's Lloyd and Glenn, the Valentines, Derek Morgan, Justin Hines. Maybe it's Jimmy. Maybe it's Lee. Maybe it's Ansel and Dave Collins. I like to say my uncles, but they're not my uncles. But I can dream. But then, bam, it lands with a thud on the offbeat. Minute Hero by The Selector. The Selector was a band founded by Neil Davies in 1979 in Coventry. It was fronted by a lady named Pauline Black and Arthur Gaps Hendrickson. And much like Madness, they had many more hits in the UK and longevity in the public eye. I don't think they had any hits in the USA, did they? Uh, no, I don't think they charted um, at all, uh, but they were sort of like cult heroes of um, a lot of the early, uh, you know, post-punk bands, uh, friends with Blondie, uh, uh, friends with uh, Chrissy Hine from Pretenders. In fact, there's a yeah. fantastic yeah. 
photo that exists out there of Chrissy Hine, Debbie Harry, um, Polly Styrene, Viv from the Slits, and um, she's one other person I can't remember, but I suppose it's not important for the Well, for the I know podcast. the I know the photo that you're talking about because I got into quite a heated debate in an 80s Facebook group with somebody who tried telling me that that was not Deborah Harry in the in the photo. So and I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so, you know, there is this kind of overlap, I think, between the the two tone ska movement and the punk movement that's taking place at that time. And um, although I don't think the the feminism movement really kind of hit ska as much as it did with punk there really is this kind of you know female empowerment streak you know that, that's consistent to both and we see this in uh the selector and then we see this in another band that we're going to talk about later on today so i really appreciate it for that um a little disappointed that you know when, when i first heard the song title three minute hero uh, my mind went somewhere completely different <laughs> a little disappointed that that is not what this song is about because that would have absolutely been like that would have been hardcore but uh you know i really uh, greatly appreciate the fact that you know we have women that are in these you know roles in music not just you know being a pretty face or whatever but actually being very talented singers and musicians and and that uh pauline definitely is uh she's been featured in a couple of uh, documentaries, interviews, things like that. And she's really one of the better spoken um, proponents of the whole ska movement. Very interesting uh, person, very articulate, fantastic to listen to. Okay, and then we would move on to ranking full stop. Let's give it a listen. Sid, are you ready? Are you ready to dance? Right, so a couple of quick notes on the beat. Um, formed in 1978, Birmingham, fronted by Dave Wakeling and Rankin Roger. Many, 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 many notable musicians in the band though, um, but we're not gonna have time to go over every single one. And uh, while they're definitely considered part of the two-tone movement, uh, it happens to be that their only release for two-tone was their cover of the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Tears of a Clown but nonetheless, very much associated, very, very important part of the movement. And I happen to love ranking full stop and I happen to love seeing Dave Wakeland play it um, in his version of the English beat. Absolute showstopper, love it every time. 
Lori, what are your, what are your thoughts on the song? Um, it's a decent song, actually. Um, so I saw the English Beat uh, live in 2013 in Skokie, Illinois. They were playing, um, what was it called? The Backstreet Bash, like a, a, a street festival. And I'm pretty sure I remember them playing the song. And, you know, it's a lot better live, I think. I think the, the experience of being in the crowd and feeling the energy, um, it, it doesn't really come through when you're just either watching it in a movie or you're, you're listening to it, you know, on speakers. Um, what exactly, enlighten me, what is the difference between the beat and the English beat? Because that's confusing to me. I mean, it, it's that they were known as the English beat over here, right? Because there was another band called The Beat? Yeah, so there's another band um, called The Beat already established in the United States. And um, I think with very little hesitation, um, if I remember the story, uh, they just said, oh, you know what? We're going to make this easy. We're going to call ourselves The English Beat over here and uh, The Beat in England. And um, it stuck. Um, you never know. Uh, It'd be lovely, 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 lovely to talk with Dave Wakeland and ask him that question to hear it right from the man himself. But uh, that's for another podcast. Okay, so that was a little snippet from Concrete Jungle. So going through uh, and preparing for the podcast, we had to decide to uh, narrow it down to a certain amount of songs because it's just so many, it would take forever. And uh, we wanted to really pick the ones that were representative of that particular band at that particular time. And Concrete Jungle completely does it for me uh, as far as that goes. You know, a lot in the way of social commentary, lot in the way of speaking of uh, their opposition to the National Front. Really, really, really solid song. Um, but more on that in a second. So, Lori, what's your take? Uh, we already asked you one question about the specials. What do you think about Concrete Jungle? Okay. <laughs> um, okay. I, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll be real honest. Usually, I, I, I force myself to watch this movie from beginning to end in preparation for this episode. Up until then, I just forwarded past most of these bands. Most of them just didn't interest me. Um, the specials, again, I appreciate, you know, they were, they captured a moment in time, you know, where there was this intersection of, you know, politics and, as you mentioned, you know, um, the, the interracial, uh, the interracial camaraderie. Um, 
they're, they strike me as being angry. And that in of itself is not a deal breaker for me because I am a fan of a lot of bands that have very angry music. But I don't know. Uh, uh, this, again, I, I just, I, I don't really care for them. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's, that's okay, Lori. Um, so uh, now, though, might be a good time to just talk a little bit about the specials. As promised, just a little brief snippet of um, their foundation. So the specials were formed in Coventry in 1977. In fact, uh, their first name was the Coventry Automatics and um, Trojan Records was kind enough to release a few selections that they had recorded as the Coventry Automatics. And Concrete Jungle uh, was one of them. So it's a nice rudimentary early recording of the song and very interesting to listen to. And of course, we couldn't do any of this podcast without mentioning the legendary Jerry Dahmers, uh, who helmed the specials band, uh, wrote a majority of their songs, rearranged classic ska tunes for the band, and of course, is the founder of Two-Tone, the record label that made all of this possible. Now, the specials uh, at this point are fronted by Terry Hall and Neville Staples, many noteworthy members in the band. And again, not gonna list them all, but I did think it made sense to um, mention Linval Golding, um, who was a Jamaican immigrant, did move to the UK when he was quite young. And uh, also to mention the great, the incomparable Rico Rodriguez, uh, Cuban, uh, Jamaican trombonist, and um, it's just fantastic in his own right, with the specials or without. Um, and it's great, great that he was um, seen in the film too, because uh, he didn't play with them forever and ever. And um, for our Madness fans, because you are our core demographic, um, if anybody gets to watch the DVD or maybe was lucky enough to see the, the Suggs uh, My Life Story show, uh, Suggs tells probably the best uh, story about meeting Jerry Dahmers and um, the formative years of the two-tone movement. So definitely check that out if you get a chance.
right, so that was a little montage of two of the madness songs that occur in the middle of the film here. We had uh, Swan Lake and Razorblade Alley. Not much left to say on those that we haven't said in previous episodes, but I wanted to listen to them and I wanted to play them because madness, and this is a madness podcast. As well we should, and it didn't hurt, I suppose, Lori, that Lee was front and center singing on Razorblade Alley. I know that's not your, your thing at all, but <laughs> we just had to do it. Oh, well, you just wait, because I'm going to get back, back at you on this next song. All right, so let's go ahead and hear the next song. Let's do Rock Study by the Body Snatchers. Again, another uh, feminist, female-led band of the uh, second wave ska movement. They were founded in 1979 by bassist Nikki Summers and fronted by Rhoda Dakar. My notes say my second crush, but uh, those are <laughs> not my second crush. <laughs> so no, that, I, I confess that was, that was me. All right. Uh, tell us, tell us a little bit more. I'll let, I'll let you talk about uh, Rhoda and the Body Snatchers. Well, it's pretty remarkable that um, being a young boy in the woods in the state of Maine um, with no MTV, uh, with only AOR rock uh, radio or country radio, um, that I could even have figured out who uh, Rhoda Dakar was. But um, I had a friend who had a really cool cousin who lived in Boston and um, we would get their old uh, punk magazines. And that's how I came across Rhoda Dakar. Can't even remember what the magazine might've been, but I was just smitten. Uh, uh, I thought she was uh, very nearly the most attractive woman I ever seen in my life. And so there you go. Crush number two for Polly.
Okay, so that was Lip Up Fatty by Bad Manners. Um, and just a little bit of info. We'll go into a little info, then we'll talk about how we like the song. So Bad Manners was formed in 1976 in North London, fronted by Buster Blood Vexel, a.k.a. Dougie Trendle. Not that I've ever heard this, or rather read this in print, but I've heard variations on it, but I really consider Bad Manners kind of edgy in their willingness to be kind of silly and out there. Um, and why I do is because you're, it's so easy to label somebody a novelty act uh, when they take the sort of risks that Bad Manners did. And in fact, um, not that we're gonna play it uh, today, but um, they did do a cover of Wooly Bully and Wooly Bully did appear on Dance Craze good on them for trying something. I don't know that I'd ever need to hear that song again in my life, anybody's version, but um, you know, they're just a different, different band. Definitely had that two-tone sort of appeal, definitely big heavy hitters, literally heavy hitters in the two-tone movement, um, but coincidentally, not uh, a two-tone band. And because we're a Madness-related podcast, I just got to put out there, that the B-side to Lip Up Fatty was Night Bus to Dalston. I don't know if that's exactly a, a, a take on Night Boat to Cairo, but boy, there's a lot of similarity there. And a reasonably good song too. And uh, just so uh, people are not that confused, uh, the term fatty, uh, Jamaican Patois word meaning actually fatty, a, a, a fat person. And, and not a joint, so nobody, uh, nobody make that mistake. So, Lori, I could go on about how I love this song, particularly the trumpet breaks in it, but let me get your take on it. Well, it's a fun song. Actually, uh, the first time I can think of that I heard it was maybe about 2003 or 2004. I was shopping in... Um, a, a resale shop, a thrift shop, and uh, the the kids behind the counter put this on, and I was just like, "What is this? I have never heard anything like this before." And I asked them, "What are we listening to?" And they said, "Oh, this is Bad Manners," and I was a little bit confused because I hadn't heard of them, and I was thinking Bad Brains, which is a completely different band, completely different sound, right? Um, I confess I don't own any of their music, uh, but I did buy a ticket in uh, 2015. They were supposed to be playing literally right around the corner from my house at a place called the Abbey Pub. Uh, however, it was canceled two weeks prior, and the rumor was it was because Buster Blood Vessel couldn't get a visa. So they had to cancel the tour. Now, I don't know what the deal was with that. A little disappointed. I think that this is a band that I would have loved to see live. I can feel just the energy coming from the song. And I think that the crowd would have magnified that. You know what I mean? It is a fun song. I, I confess I, I sing that. I have a, a, a cat that's a little bit fat that also has no hair on his lower lip. So I sing this to him from time to time. And so he thinks it's about him. And uh, Lori, I think your, um, your speculation about whether you would enjoy this band live is, is pretty well-founded. Um, Bad Manners, I really feel, is a band that was somewhat inhibited 
by uh, the production value on a lot of their albums, uh, particularly um, when they got pretty heavy into uh, sound in a can sort of synthesizers. Um, but again, like I mentioned of um, the specials, uh, Trojan Records has released an awful, awful lot of live versions of their songs, and they are fantastic. Uh, they always work with a very, very talented horn section and very horn heavy and very, um, you know, it's all upbeat. There's not a slow number in their repertoire. Um, so I think you would uh, find them absolutely enchanting if you were able to go see them. Hey, this is one you should all know. It's every band on two tone does this song. They call it Madness. Yes, that's our boys. That's Madness. And that's actually the song that uh, they were named after. It's a cover of a Prince Buster song. I don't know what else I can say about that. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, okay. it's a, it's a, well, it, you know, it's a vibe, right? I mean, I feel like you and I have talked about so many of these songs so many times that uh, the expression beating a dead horse comes to mind. Um, I can't wait bit, to yeah. Can't wait to see what we're going to do when we get to Nightboat to Cairo. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, we'd be remiss in not playing it. And this one in particular, I think maybe is a little bit one of their lesser known ones, at least to American fans. Yeah, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of their stronger songs. Um, started out, you know, strong, finishes strong, uh, always a part of their set, as you would expect. And um, yeah, no, I mean, there's nothing to not really like about the song. Um, and like you said, yeah, we're just being a dead horse because this has got to be like the fifth time I think we brought it up in podcasts.
All right, so that was too much too young from the specials, and um, and kind of keeping with our theme, uh, I want to talk about the time. I want to talk about the era. What a timely song that was. Um, you know, sort of a reflection on the welfare state in the UK. Um, while they don't um, implicitly name unemployment or poverty, that's kind of the subtext of it a little bit too. And uh, I just find it a fantastic song. You know, definitely a staples of um, special show, one of their more um, noteworthy songs, one of their more famous songs. And um, I just think it's fantastic. Absolutely love it. And back to a little bit more about the movie. Um, I found online a little snippet from the New York Times dated the 25th of April, 1982, just following the American release. Um, and the author in the article says this, uh, the sloppy but cheerful dance craze, which opened Friday at the 8th Street Playhouse, is a concert film devoted to the musical hybrid known variously as ska or two-tone or rock steady. The English bands featured here owe a lot to reggae. The best known British band rockers playing anything of this sort are the police, who do not appear in dance craze, but have added a thing or two of their own. Now, before getting into the rest of the snippet from the article, I just want to say I don't even get why they put the police in there um, or what it would have to do. It just certainly does not add to the article. And while the police did have elements of reggae, they're just, they're not part of the ska movement. Uh, so anyways, bad on them. Um, well, I kind of get it. You kind of get it. I kinda oh, get, well, we you know, the, the first time I ever heard of the Beats was Sting was wearing a t-shirt that said the beat in one of his concerts. I'd never heard of them before that. And um, oh, their, their early stuff really is kind of tinged with this reggae-esque or, or, or ska-like, you know, vibe. I mean, they really evolved away from that. But no, I, I get it. And I think that that's maybe a reference that American audiences might actually understand. Whereas, you know, I, I, again, I don't remember ever hearing of any of these bands when I was, you know, a kid in the late seventies, early eighties, except for Madness. So, I mean, I think maybe that they're, they're writing to, you know, their audience. I also think it's really strange. I know you're not done with your, your quote yet with the, the, um, with the article, but even just the title dance craze, you know, I, I, I don't even understand why they chose that title because, you know, the twist was a dance craze, right? The Foxtrot in its time was a dance craze. I don't associate a particular dance with this um, music. Maybe I'm being pedantic. No, uh, I, I think they, well, <clears throat> it's kind of the haphazardness of the film that, uh, that, adds to the sort of uh, ambiguity of it. Uh, you know, they, they start out with this very peculiar narration uh, talking about um, how workaday Joes uh, live for Friday and Saturday night so they can go out to clubs and the whole bit like that. Uh, but then they immediately like full stop, boom. There's no narration to the rest of the movie. Um, 
it's a very, uh, yeah, like I said, very kind of haphazard, kind of clunky yeah. Uh, yeah. introduction to the movie. So I think that's where Dance Graze comes into it. Doesn't uh, exactly uh, address it directly, but um, yeah, that's that's not one of the endearing parts of the movie is the uh, strange narration that does then seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the film. Well, uh, yeah, especially like the intermission, right? I, I first time I saw this with the intermission, I'm like, what is this? Gone with the wind? Why? Why do we have an intermission here? Um, the movie itself, I'll be honest, I don't think is that great. Um, I wish that they had stuck with their original idea and just focused on madness. Again, that's my own preference. I know a lot of our listeners are going to disagree. Um, I'd be very curious to know how this movie did in the United States when it opened. I might have to do a little bit of digging there because I suspect it really was not, uh, did not bring in a lot of money. Uh, no, it did not. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, it was very likely going to be bound for the you know midnight movie matinees uh those cheap two dollar shows where you just go hang out and smoke pot in the back row or something like that um it wasn't heralded as any any great movie And there we listen to On My Radio, another of um, uh, the selector songs featured in the movie. And I would say probably like their Hallmark song. I'm a big fan of it. Lori, what's your take on it? You know, I'm going to get so much hate mail after this episode. Uh, it's okay, but it's just okay. I mean, I don't, most of this stuff is not stuff that I would actively listen to. You know, and I can't, I can't imagine sitting in a movie theater watching this. I think I would be bored out of my mind. Well, and there you go. Uh, yeah, direct your letters to Lori, not Polly. No, please don't. Um, please don't. <laughs> just, I know, okay, people don't send letters anymore. I get that. Just make your uh, emails and texts all caps so she knows how angry you are. Um, yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. Everybody has their different, everybody has their different things, don't they? Um, no, I mean, I was always bound to be a fan of uh, Ska. Um, and, uh, you know, I, Selector happens to be one of my favorite bands still. So, no, what can I say? I love it. Uh, but moving on a little bit, to talk a little bit more about the subtext to the movie um, and a little bit about Two-Tone. So the name Two-Tone 
uh, being derived from Jerry Dahmer's and indeed the rest of the movement's desire to have racially balanced groups talking about timely social issues, such as racism probably being chief among them. And that's it. It's black and it's white, quite literal. Uh, and that's where the name Two-Tone came from. Um, it was truly unique at the time and probably the most compelling part of the film was the, uh, the unity and seeing uh, black and white uh, musicians performing together and so cohesively too. And, uh, you know, for a little bit more on the explanation of it, I just want to name drop the uh, Under the Influence documentary series. Uh, they do have a section on ska. Um, and it's probably the best resource for getting um, uh, people who are right there on ground level, uh, their interpretation of what the movement was like. So look for that. You know, I want to kind of throw in a little bit here, you know, you're talking about the idea of, um, you know, again, we talk about interracial cooperation, black and white on the same stage. And it's very interesting to me, it was very eye opening when I first started encountering um, ska fans from England. Because I guess that this movement was very big um, among skinheads. And, and in the UK, you know, the skinhead movement was very different than it was here in the United States. I mean, I went to high school with a bunch of skinheads. And uh, the American skinheads, generally speaking, I mean, there are some exceptions. There were, you know, the, the sharps, you know, but uh, generally speaking, American skinheads would not be caught dead listening to this kind of music because it is so heavily influenced by black culture. Um, most of the American skinheads that I know were listening to, like uh, um, uh, Stormtroopers of Death, uh, Method of Destruction, that kind of stuff. Very, very different movements on both sides of the ponds. So that really, to me, was, was a very eye-opening experience that, that there would be such a huge difference in how the two cultures evolved on different sides of the Atlantic. No, uh, you're, not, uh, you're not wrong. And of course, this caused more than um, its share of uh, troubles for a lot of the bands, um, both because um, they're always defending themselves uh, from the perception that they have a racist fan base, uh, true or untrue, does, doesn't matter, it always requires explaining. Um, and, you know, as, as well, uh, you know, somewhat, somewhat limiting in their appeal uh, for the same reason, for always having that perception. So, yeah, uh, I think I'm just, I'm rambling. So that was Easy Life by the Body Snatchers. Um, now the Body Snatchers broke up, you know, pretty shortly after um, uh, Dan's 
craze was released. Uh, in fact, they really only seemed to make it about two years as a band, which is kind of a shame. Um, I thought they were one of the highlights of the film. I really, really uh, took to the band. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe it's just they weren't supported by many releases. They seemed to only have two um, seven-inch singles released by Two-Tone, and they were never picked up by any major label. But uh, nonetheless, all very talented people. Um, and many of them went on to form uh, the Bell Stars. Now the Bell Stars, you know, everybody could probably remember them from the Ico Ico song that was on the Rain Man soundtrack. But nonetheless, uh, they're a pretty good pedigree and uh, we're a pretty good band. Um, they were assigned by Stiff Records. Uh, everybody who's Madness fans will know that. And coincidentally produced by the same um, team of Langer and Winston Lee. So, you know, they're in good company in that respect. So that was Rough Rider by the English Beat, a.k.a. The Beat. It's a cover of a Prince Buster song. And this is one of those songs where, I mean, I've been reading a lot lately about rock music and the history of rock and roll and how, you know, it was considered so scandalous when, when rock first started becoming popular not just because elvis shaking his pelvis on tv but because you know the the music was a lot more about sex you know it was a lot more blatant and i think that this song in particular at least to me i mean i don't know that i would consider this rock necessarily but you know the idea of these songs coming from black culture and a lot of them are a lot more explicit than you know, what, what people I think were, were accustomed to. And I think this is a, a great example of that kind of explicitness. Yeah, and it definitely is, um, you know, can be, uh, I wouldn't say uh, hidden, but it can be, it can, it can pass a lot more easily in different cultures, um, I think, than it would in 1960s, 70s, and 80s uh, America. Um, like the, if you dig a little bit into a lot of uh, the Jamaican ska, there's, it's not even, uh, I wouldn't say double entendre. It's going to be quite deliberate. They're referencing sex in a lot of um, the music and somewhat, uh, geez, I don't want to say somewhat progressive or ahead of its time, but to me, almost a little bit better because there's this, 
nothing I find uh, more juvenile, I think sometimes about all uh, the euphemisms and double entendres and things like that, when the song is really, really laden with it. But, but to your point of, you know, even early in rock and roll, I mean, rock music's always been kind of hypersexualized and there always seems to be a bit of an arms race and who can outdo each other. And I really only find it off-putting when it's not, uh, when it's not clever at all, when it's just blatant and gross. So anyways, that's my, that's my take. That's, that's the polypontification moment of the episode. <laughs> Ooh, good alliteration there, polypontification. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Rough Rider, uh, there's one charming thing, I think, about uh, the Rough Rider song, and that's when um, the uh, English beat play it in concert um, that it's very common for Dave Wakeling to do a little bit of a uh, uh, introduction where it's, uh, she was a rough rider and it's a bit of that kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh, you get it, you get it, right? Uh-huh, you know, he's very, definitely very jokey about it. Um, and it is somewhat endearing. You know, I'm just speculating out loud. I have no idea if there's a connection or not, but I wonder if Eve, the the rapper who you know had the group called the Rough Riders. I wonder if she was inspired at all by by either this version or the Prince Buster version. Just speculating. I don't know. That would be interesting. And I'm always a fan of finding out that somebody who um, uh, someone like Eve uh, who comes from the hip hop world, someone who you would find yourself quite removed from potentially, uh, has a common interest. So I would absolutely be in love. Um, with the idea if that's where she got her inspiration from that. I would, I would be very charmed by that. So we just heard Inner London Violence by Bad Manners. Hallmark song of theirs, fantastic. I absolutely adore it. Um, little hard to understand. Uh, not a lot in the way of alliteration going on there. Um, and it's more uh, the Buster Blood Vessel style of just grunting it out there, which I happen to say I'm a pretty big fan of. Uh, Lori, what's your thoughts? As a whole, I think Bad Manners are probably some of the better parts of this particular film? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, <clears throat> well, it seemed to be all people wanted to talk about when Bad Manners was kind of coming on the scene was that, okay, here's a big fat guy. Um, and I don't mean to um, uh, just say that callously. That's pretty much literally what people would say. 
Um, and he alludes to it a great deal. There's more than about six songs uh, that they have directly mentioning his, his weight. Um, and he's a big guy. He's out there. He's sometimes wearing a can-can dress. Um, you know, he's, he's there for the fans. Well, it, it's, unfortunate. it's unfortunate, I think, that, you know, there is this stereotype because of his weight. Now, over the years, he's lost a lot, uh, a lot of weight. And I know he had some health problems as a result of it. But um, I, I, it's the same thing, unfortunately, I think, with comedians, where I think you get labeled as like a, a one-trick pony. Um, Chris Farley, you know, he was one that it was always like, oh, yeah, the fat guy, the fat comedian, right? And that's really kind of became how he was labeled. And unfortunately, I don't think it was until after he died that people really started to realize that, wow, this, there was actually a comedic genius there, that it was not just this, this fat guy flopping around on the stage. And I, I think that that's unfortunate of all of the entertainment industry, you know, and I, I'm guilty of it too, I'll admit, you know, of kind of uh, pigeonholing or stereotyping people. Um, but yeah, he is, you know, uh, Buster Blood Vessel. He is a very, um, very talented guy. Hey, Polly. Oh, yeah. Do you hear what I hear? It's the night boat no. to Cairo. You set me up there. Um, yeah, so we should probably talk a straight 10 minutes just about Nightboat Cairo. Um, yeah, I mean, we've, we've said everything we're going to say about it, but uh, it never hurts to have one more documentation of just what a great live song it is. And it certainly is in the movie, too. Now, coincidentally... Like, how much faster can they play it? <laughs> I'm right. noticing every, every live iteration I'm hearing, it's being sped up and sped up. And it, it, that's very true of live music. I think Woody said in an interview that when he's playing live, he plays like five beats per minute faster than when it's in a recording because they're feeding off of the audience's energy, you know, and it just becomes this real energetic, you know, crazy kind of vibe. But um, yeah, I think if they go much faster on that, I think that uh, Chris's guitar is going to set fire. Mm -hmm. 
That was Twist and Crawl by The Beat. Um, and uh, again, and I keep saying this, uh, if nothing else, I'm always guilty about repeating the same sort of thing over and over, but uh, you know, pretty much a Hallmark song of the band. Um, a very notable one and always a crowd pleaser. Um, now, of course, about the time of the film's release, uh, The Beat were, let's say, on the outs. Um, as the story's told, Dave Wakeling, uh, and Rankin Roger always felt like, yeah, bands only get a couple of good albums in them and let's not persist with uh, beating a dead horse. So about the time of the film, the beat were about to record a special beat service, which would be their final uh, album with the core um, classic uh, lineup. So we just heard too much pressure by the selector, but uh, also 1981 MTV airs. Um, and uh, on the first day, uh, the selectors celebrate the bullet, which I know isn't what we're talking about today. Um, with a, that would be on a later album uh, was uh, shown. Uh, the video was shown on the first day of MTV. So good on them. That's a cultural milestone to tuck into their belt. And I would say too much pressure. Also a very, very fine song. days of MTV, I remember this one from MTV, Mirror in the Bathroom. Um, this to me is probably the first song that comes to mind when somebody mentions the English beat. It's probably one of their best known songs. So um, what can you tell me about Saxa and this song? Sure. So uh, Saxa played with um, the English beat 
uh, early on, I, I'd have to look to be sure, but I think on the first two albums, I don't know if he was there for special beat service, but um, Saxa played on many, many, many uh, seminal uh, ska recordings. Uh, he played with Laurel Aitken. I played with Prince Bester. He played with Desmond Decker. And um, I don't know if I've ever heard it explained how he got connected with the beat, but of course he had moved to uh, England by then, uh, no surprise. But he started playing with the beat. And that to me is no disrespect to Dave Wakeling and the crew. But that's not dissimilar from a high school basketball team recruiting Dr. J. I just don't even know how something like that comes around. But um, to their credit, they're solid, solid songwriters. And uh, to Sax's credit, he fit right in really, really well. Um, and uh, to speak of the inclusivity of the two-tone movement, it's fantastic that um, not only is it there, uh, black and white musicians playing together. But by that time, Sax was uh, a lot older than any of the other people represented in, in the beat or any of the other bands. So it was great to see that um, uh, kids also embraced him. So so good on him, and I'm, I miss him very much. He, sadly, I think he left us in, in 2017, maybe it was. Maybe it was earlier, I don't know. Beyond. Again, I don't know what else we could possibly say about this song that we haven't said already, but again, it's such a staple of their live shows even today. And it really exemplifies the kind of live energy that Madness have always had. That it does. And, um, you know, a, a credit to, to Madness uh, when they do perform live, um, they do. Uh, you know, they do the fan involvement stuff like anybody does. But I find it really off-putting when I'm at a concert and find that any band has to really be their own hype person. When they've got to talk endlessly about that big song that they're going to play next and on and on and on. Madness escapes all of that. They don't have to hype themselves. They just have to put it out there. Um, and that's what works so brilliantly about their live performances. You don't got to work hard to get the kiddies into liking One Step Beyond. It's just going to happen. So that brings us almost to the end of the film. Not quite, but we're pretty close. So the interesting thing to me about this film is um, it, it never was released on DVD. Right? It was only released on VHS. In speaking with, a, I have a friend over in Scotland who has been trying for years to find out who actually owns the rights to the film. 
because he wanted to purchase it and he actually wanted to release it himself on DVD. And from what I understand, it's been a lot of back and forth between the film studio, the record label, the director. Nobody seems to know <laughs> who actually owns the rights to the film Dance Craze. Isn't that insane? It, it is. Um, you know, the closest I've gotten to that, um, figuring any of that out is uh, hardly really detective work, but you know, Chrysalis Records still owns the rights to the soundtrack. So that would lead me to think that they have some ownership of the, the film, but that's speculative on my part. I have no idea, but you're right. It's, it is, it's an absolute crying shame um, in an era when you can watch the worst television or the worst movies at the click of a couple of buttons and everything gets released on DVD with the most mundane of special features. Why exactly you can't get this movie is beyond me. And actually see it remastered and updated a little bit would be a fantastic thing because there's a, there's a lot lacking yeah. in uh, the original format. Yeah. Well, it is, it is on YouTube, so yeah. any of our listeners who'd like to either watch for the first time or maybe just kind of refresh your memory, Dance Craze on YouTube, the, the full film is there. Um, Polly, what do you think as far as, uh, what is the ultimate cultural significance of this film, do you think? So I think that Dance Craze endures as, you know, a seminal moment in the Sky Revival movement. You know, if it does one thing right, it captures the frenetic energy, uh, the sound, uh, the unity and the brotherhood between band members, like both in the bands and with the other bands. And, you know, it really shows the unity between uh, the bands and the audience, too. You know, I think that's probably the most important part of both the, the Scott Revival movement and the movie. Uh, you know, despite its obvious flaws, I do find Dance Craze to be pretty charming and humble it's in, in its approach of just showing the good stuff. If you watch a lot of rock documentaries, which I do, there's an awful lot of pre-planned backstage antics. There's contrived drama and things that they try to inject into uh, live performance films and things like that. And it doesn't have to happen in Dance Craze and they didn't do it. So I'm very thankful for that. But I would say that there is, you know, still remains a little bit of controversy both about the not having it released on DVD, not a proper version of it put out there, but even the soundtrack. So uh, there's uh, a couple of different versions of the soundtrack in the, the, the second one was released without the Madness tracks. And uh, I don't know whether that was record labels, uh, turf war sort of stuff, but. Um, if I remember correctly, they did a, a, a release with the Madness songs and they immediately recalled it. Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, there was some question as to, I, I guess, because of Madness's uh, contract with their record label, and this would have been in violation of that. So if you are fortunate enough to get your hands on a copy of the original, original version with Madness before it was uh, recalled, yeah, that's probably worth some big bucks. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And uh, yeah, they ended up replacing it with the specials, a.k.a. some live recordings of, of them, which is perplexing to me because not only isn't uh, Specials AKA not exactly the Specials band, um, although I'm a big fan of it, it's a different era, different art incarnation, and it wasn't featured in the film, so I, I kind of don't get the point of it. 
But anyways, folks, um, that might just bring us to the end of the podcast. Lori, is there anything else? Let's talk about real quick what we're going to do for our next episode. Sure. So we what have are been, we doing? Yeah, well, okay. So we had been kind of teasing for a few few weeks now that we were going to do an episode on Chaz Smash. We put that off because we had that excellent, excellent interview with Nick Woodgate, which by the way, again, thank you, Nick. Uh, the feedback that we've gotten from that episode has been so, so good, so positive. Everybody really enjoyed listening to Nick. Um, and then this episode, so... I'm thinking that the next episode, Polly, is going to be our Cockle Smith uh, slash Chaz Smash episode. What do you think? I think it's uh, I think it's a good time to do it. I suppose we should. All right. Okay. Well, we thought we would do a nice little parallel to the movie. Um, so the p- movie leads in with the specials nightclub, and it leads out with it too. And that's what we're going to do. So. Goodbye from us here at Stateside Madness. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Yes. And go get a beer, Stateside Madness. Parasite, I creep about that.